Praise the Lord, everybody. Good morning. It's good to be here this morning in the house of the Lord. Amen. Amen. While, while we're finding our seat, if you haven't had the chance to shake somebody's hand, why don't we stand up this morning and meet and greet for a second? I'm sure we probably said hello to somebody this morning, but why don't you find someone you haven't said hello to? And Sorry to make you stand. I think I, I think I heard something along those lines. I don't know. Just stretch a little bit, right? Yeah, just stretch a little bit. I promise it won't be aerobics class. I promise that. Amen. Amen. All right. You can be seated. No aerobics class this morning. I promise. Well. It'll be what you make it. Amen. All right, so uh, I have a few announcements to make this morning as our ushers come to prepare to receive our Sunday school offering. They're going to, they're on their way up. Amen. So I want to remind you uh, prayer and fasting revival is going to be June uh, 3rd through 5th, sun, uh, 7 p.m. nightly. So that's a prayer and fasting revival coming up. It'll be listed on Breeze, so you can take a look at that. Uh, again, that's June 3rd uh, through the 5th at 7 p.m. nightly. And then there will be a kids revival coming up on Wednesday, June 5th. So that's for our children. Again, that's Wednesday, June 5th with a guest speaker, Sister Vicki Oliver. Uh, it's a perfect time to invite guests. Uh, Sister Oliver is um, very gifted with helping people seek the Holy Ghost and praying, pe praying with people to receive the Holy Ghost, especially with children. So um, if you have friends that have children um, and you have guests, please, uh, please remember them and invite them. And then uh, we want to remember Pentecost Sunday that's coming up. That's going to be Sunday, June 9th. And uh, our guest speaker for that will also be Sister Vicki Oliver. So let's remember, remember that. That's Pentecost Sunday on uh, uh, June 9th at 10.30 a.m. is our worship service. And then uh, 6 p.m. is going to be a outreach and evangelism training. It's called Without Walls Training. So um, we're going to have a great time in the Lord with that. Some awesome training. So we're going to have some really exciting things coming up here in June. So again, if you don't remember all of these dates, these dates will be located on the church calendar in Breeze. So all these are available to you. Amen. So today we're going to continue our discipleship uh, project course and lesson. Um, our topic today is when Jesus prayed, uh, when he had been wronged. And the big idea is when we've been wronged, we must pray to gain God's perspective. And I think that's an important thing, amen, to have God's perspective. And uh, I want to I have God's perspective in my life. And whenever we begin to uh, observe the way Jesus responded to the many ways that he was treated, I think that it calls us, it should call us. I don't just think it, I know it. It calls us to respond accordingly. It calls us to have our perspective transformed. It calls us to have our perspective molded to what is a biblical perspective. Amen. So we're going to talk about that today uh, as we get started here. But before we do, I wonder if we could just close our eyes and lift our hearts and voices to the Lord and ask Him to bless us today and for us to hear His Word and to receive His Word into our hearts. Lord Jesus, we thank You today for Your goodness and for Your love and for this congregation and for this local church. We thank You, Lord, for Your work among us Lord, in your mighty presence, we thank you, God, for the work that you're doing among us, and we pray today that you would prepare our hearts to receive your word. I pray, God, that as we journey today to understand your perspective, as we journey today through your word, that you would transform us, God, that we would see the times that you prayed, that we would see how you reacted when you were wronged, and, God, that you would call us to respond as you did. Lord Jesus, we praise you and we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. 
People who have capitalized on significant moments in time have shaped human history. They impacted the world by decisions made in these moments. Kingdoms have risen and fallen because of decisions made at critical moments in time. Economics have both increased and collapsed because of decisions made at critical moments in time. Every life is defined by the decisions made at critical moments in time. Throughout his three and and one half years of public ministry, Jesus drastically changed the plight of people around him by the decisions he made. A woman at a well was forever changed because Jesus decided to take a detour through Samaria. A blind beggar was healed because Jesus paused long enough to ask him what he needed done for him. Ten lepers were transformed simply because Jesus made the decision to cross the road to where they were. Lazarus was brought back to life because Jesus decided to speak words of life outside of Lazarus's tomb. Perhaps you're aware of it, or perhaps not, but history is being shaped by our decisions today. Are the history of our lives, the history our lives will tell, the history this church will tell. History will note those who had their lives changed forever when they tasted of living water. It will tell of those who were untouchable like lepers, but were cleansed and made white as snow. History will tell of those who were dead in their sin, but who Christ caused to rise up again into a new man. All of this history will be told because of the power of decision. And sometimes I think it can become a mediocrity, a mediocrity to make a decision. I think sometimes we don't think that, hmm, I wonder what history hinges right now on this decision. I wonder what my child will see when I make this decision. I wonder what my significant other will see or be, how they will be affected when I make this decision. I wonder how my relationship with God will be influenced or affected when I make this decision. We go through life, I think, sometimes, and we don't have to be microscopic about it. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying how often do we really take the time to say what history is being changed because of the decision I'm making right now? What history is being changed because I didn't or did talk to someone at the grocery store? What history is or isn't being changed because I decided to pray or not to pray? with someone who's seeking the Lord at the altar, or to say a word of encouragement to a family member because it seems as if they're having a rough time. Maybe we are good with those things, but maybe as I'm speaking, you're thinking of some things you're not good with. But history is being shaped by our decisions. Decision-making is uniquely human. It's It's uniquely human. Human beings had, to see, had a, a choice to make in the Garden of Eden. We know how that story turned out. But God gave us the power to make decisions for a reason. Because that's what it means to be human. And every day we have a choice. We have a decision. Lord, will I respond to your will? Lord, will I follow after you? Lord, will I enter into this day with my heart turned toward you? Or will I enter this day and not really be aware of the spiritual side of things. Well, I enter this day and live really in a carnal sense, in a carnal way. Not, not, not carnal as in necessarily sinful, but not necessarily mindful of the spiritual realm. See, we have decisions. And our decision-making process is the place where faith is located. And I just want to qualify that and what I mean by that. James tells us that faith without works is dead. If you've heard that scripture, say amen. Amen. So we know that's in the Bible. We've We've heard that scripture quoted. But before a work can be done, we must make a decision to do a work. I can't necessarily pick up this book if I have not decided that my hand will begin to be in motion and I will pick it up. So likewise, 
There are things in my spiritual, in the realm of faith that says I'm only, I believe it and so I'm going to do it. So if I believe that Jesus is the, is the, the only way to salvation, if his gospel is the only way to salvation, then that means I'm going to follow what he says to do. I have to repent. I have to be baptized. I have to receive the Holy Ghost. I have to be baptized in Jesus' name. I have to receive the Holy Ghost. See, faith is that place in the midst of our decision that influences where we come down. So if my neighbor has done me wrong, it's because of that faith in the middle of my decision that says, okay, am I going to react in anger? Or am I going to have patience with this person and react in love? Because to what degree do I believe that God is going to judge me? To what degree do I believe that God is either A, satisfied or dissatisfied with my reaction? I think faith is in the midst and at work in our decisions. And the influence behind our decisions, that's... That is the realm of faith. So where do we come down on things? Yes or no? Will I go or will I stay? Will I speak or will I be silent? Where will we fall on these questions at critical moments? Today we find Jesus at one such critical moment. No decision Jesus made was more critical than the one he made on the cross. For a moment, consider what he had gone through before, he ever, before ever making the the decision he made. After spending time in the Garden of Gethsemane traveling to be released from what he was about to endure, Jesus prayed the words, Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. The midnight hour had passed and the early morning hours were approaching. He could hear footsteps and the whispered voices of those who had recently entered the garden. Moments later, Judas approached Jesus and quickly placed a kiss of betrayal on the side of his face. The words of Jesus, the words Jesus spoke were compassionate, but would haunt Judas for hours to come. Friend, Jesus said, why have you come? I marvel, I marvel at that scripture, that Jesus would call him friend, even knowing what Judas was in the process of doing. But before Judas could respond, the soldiers confronted Judas and bound his hands with rope. They arrested him and led him away to an unjust trial. Jesus was aware that his disciples quickly fled the garden as they saw the soldiers approaching. Those who could not pray with him chose not to stay with him either. And that's an important, that's an important point to make. Those that could not pray with him could not stay with him. And I wonder today if that is also true for our prayer lives. If we cannot spend a few minutes with the Lord, then can we go with Him? Can we stay with Him throughout the day? Can we go with Him day to day, moment to moment, when we have not even spent just a few moments in prayer with the Lord? For those who could not pray with Him could not stay with Him either. Fear gripped their hearts. Emotions gripped their hearts and they fled when they saw the danger. And there will be times that we are surely going to encounter danger, surely going to encounter fear. We must have prayer in our lives. They, desert, they deserted him at a moment when he desperately needed friends at his side. Let's consider this, that during the unfolding events of one of the darkest and longest nights humanity has ever known, we must not forget the injustice and in an illegality of it all. It was illegal to arrest a man at night, first of all. The law stated arrest could only take place during daylight hours. Also, since Judas was a known friend of Jesus, it was technically illegal for him to have, to have anything to do with the arrest of Jesus. A great injustice occurred by holding the trials in front of Annas and Caiaphas during the darkness of night. The Talmud declared... The members of the court may not alertly and intelligently hear the testimony against the accused during the hours of darkness. Lastly, if the Jewish trials had been conducted correctly, guilt could not be immediately pronounced. Rather, those involved would go home for a minimum of two days 
and contemplate all they had heard before rendering a judgment. The very thought of pronouncing an instant judgment was reprehensible. So one can only imagine the intense levels of emotion that were coursing through Jesus. Consider how illegal and unjust this process was. Everything about this was wrong. To suffer the shame and indignity of being wrongly arrested, convicted, and condemned is far beyond what most people could ever endure and still retain their sanity. I can say that's true for me. I cannot imagine going through something like this. How much harder must it have been for the one who had come into the world with the purpose of saving the very people who had just abused him. Yet even this paled in comparison to the crucifixion he endured. And perhaps one could imagine Jesus would have been justified to be angry or to have sought revenge against those who condemned him to die in this way. I would have been angry. I, I would have been disappointed. I cannot imagine how I, the sense of betrayal to have known my close friends that I had been with for such a long time would have left in the way that they did. To have ran off at the first sign of trouble. Never the, and, and, to, and, and not only that, the very fact that Jesus was the Messiah. Wow. What a desertion. Perhaps one would stop to hear words of loss or grief come from the mouth of Jesus because these might be the kind of words we might expect to come from our own mouths if this were us. However, Jesus, for the most part, remained silent in all these injustices. And that is also an amazing thing, his silence. Because we see when they drug him before the court so unlawfully, he, he barely spoke. And this won't be behind me, but it's Mark 15 and 2. And Pilate asked him, Art thou the king of Jews? And, and he answering said unto him, Thou sayest it. And the chief priest accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And Pilate asked him again, saying, Answerest thou nothing? Behold, how many things they witness against thee. But Jesus yet answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. In the middle of all the injustice, in the middle of all that was unlawful, the unlawfulness of the trial that he went through, his friend betraying him, everything that he could have spoken up against, he remained silent. Jesus' act, reaction was not retaliatory. It was not vengeful, nor did he plead his case. He was simply silent. I think we can draw from this the necessity of learning to be still in the knowledge that he is God. This is an I need to chill moment. Anybody ever had one of those? I need to chill moment. It's one of those moments where everything is stacked against me. I've been lied to, lied about, lied against. Who knows whatever, what other things um, have happened in your life, but everything has happened to you. Injustice has stacked, at, stacked up against you. And you're in a moment where it's like, I am either going to explode or I got to find some peace with God. And you're in that I need to chill moment. It's in the moment where, I, where it's, I need to find some silence. I just need to be still. So that in that stillness, I can get some perspective. I can get some perspective that Jesus is still on the throne. That he's still God. And that even though I'm being persecuted, Jesus reigns. And that his power is for me and he is for me. And if he's for me, who can be against me? And if you're thankful for that today, why don't you give the Lord a hand clap of praise? Thank you, Lord. You see, these I need to chill moments, these moments where I have to take a break and be silent and know that he's God, this is one of those moments where we have to make decisions. Will I endure God's way or try some other way? Only God's way will lead to life. Only God's way will lead to wholeness. If I decide to come down on any other way, that's, 
it's, it's going to lead to brokenness. It's going to lead to more pain. It's going to lead to more sorrow. See, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knew what the will of the uh, he knew what needed to be done. So as he was being persecuted, suffering injustice, he remained silent because he knew this is the only way. So he came down on the side of what was right and what, what had to be done. And sometimes, even though it's painful, we have to come down on that side. We have to come down on that side in a sacrificial way that says, Lord, this is going to be painful, but I know that it's the right thing to do because it's the holy thing to do. And it can't, it's going to be painful in the moment. It's going to hurt in the moment. But when we get on the other side of it, we're going to see some things resurrected. We're going to see some glory on the other side of it. And God's going to pour out like we didn't expect. Amen. Soon after this unlawful trial ended, Jesus would, have ta- would be taken and crucified. The next place we go to in our lesson is a place of great suffering. Jesus is hanging upon the cross, having endured the maximum amount of torment a human being can endure. He begins to make utterances in this moment. Though he was silent in his trial, it was in this moment where he had had been wounded the worst that he begins to speak in a way his accusers might not have expected. Looking at the soldiers gathered around him and seeing their looks of disdain and revulsion, he simply said, Father, forgive them. For they know not what they do. I can't imagine what that crowd must have heard when he uttered those words. And I cannot tell you, it, I, I don't think it was a whisper if everybody heard it. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It was pretty evident to the crowd that he was praying for them. It's pretty evident to the crowd that he was speaking to them, to the apostles, to all within, his, within the sound of his voice. He meant them. Everyone that day was a part of them. You were a part of them. I was a part of them. So here's our first question in our book today. What do you think ran through the minds of those who heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do? I think there was probably conviction. I think that there was probably a little bit of confusion. Here's this man that we have crucified hanging upon the cross and he's praying for us, for us to be forgiven. I'm not sure they would have been able to comprehend such a prayer at the time that it was spoken. I'm not sure the apostles knew what to do with it in that exact moment. But I think that taking a look at another story can help us grasp, uh, get a better grasp on what Jesus is praying here. And I want to go to the story of Absalom. And I'm not going to, I don't have the scriptures up here to to go through it. And I'm not going to read a whole lot of them. But I'm just going to sum it up. So Absalom was David's son. And he started a rebellion. And David's son had been forgiven for something he had already done. And he was in the city and he was turning the hearts of the people against David. And I'm just trying to make this real quick for us because there's a lot to still go through. And uh, he was turning the hearts of the people against David. And um, then once he got enough support, he started the rebellion David had to flee with his, with his people that were still loyal to him. And uh, once David fled, they kind of gathered back together, got their forces all rallied and said, okay, now we have to go take the kingdom back. But the thing is, David didn't want Absalom to be killed. David didn't want it, the death penalty to be handed out to Absalom. He wanted, David wanted Absalom to be dealt with gently. That's what the scripture says. Deal with Absalom gently. Don't hurt him. If you find him and he's not wounded, don't any man touch him. Don't hurt him. But the problem was, is that in the middle of the battle, Absalom was riding a donkey, which is closer to the ground, and he was caught by the neck in a tree. 
And I don't know how this didn't like strangle him. The scripture doesn't say, but he's somehow hanging there. And he's unharmed. He's just kind of hanging there. But whenever, whenever the messenger comes and tells, uh, whenever the messenger come, comes to let, the, to let Joab know, Joab says, well, why didn't you do something about it? He's hanging there. Why didn't you slay him? And the messenger said, whoa, didn't you hear what David said? No man's supposed to touch him. I was afraid. You heard what David said to you. And Joab said, okay, well, uh, I'm going to go take care of this. So Joab goes to Absalom, who's hanging in the tree, unharmed. And this is graphic. Not super graphic, but it's, well, it might be kind of graphic. But he takes, he takes arrows and he pierces Absalom through the heart with arrows. And then ten men gather around him and beat Absalom. And then they pull Absalom down and they throw him in a deep pit in the woods where no one knows, will know where he's at. It's not a grave anyone can visit. And they pile rocks on top of him. David said, treat him gently. Treat Absalom gently. And what did they do? Well, they beat him and treated him in one of the most disrespectful ways possible. In 2 Samuel 18, we see David's reaction. And the king said to Cushai, who is the messenger, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Cushai answered, The enemies of my lord the king and all that rise against thee to do thee hurt, be as that young man is. And the king was much moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, my God, I had died for thee, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Wow. What words of compassion for someone who had started a rebellion and betrayed the king. A compassion the king's men obviously couldn't comprehend or relate to. We know the Bible tells us David was a man after God's own heart. We can hear the love in the heart of David as he grieves the death of his son. Did he betray David? Yes. Did he do foolish things? Yes. However, regardless of that, he was loved. This kind of love was not something those around David could understand. Because we see in chapter 19, the next scripture, we see something that those around him said. And it was told Joab, Behold, the king weepeth and mourneth for Absalom, and the victory that day was turned into mourning unto all the people. It was supposed to be a celebration. It was supposed to be a victorious day. But here David is weeping. Here David is praying for his son who had died. And it had become mourning. For the people heard say that day how the king was grieved for his son. And the people got them by stealth that day into the city as people being ashamed steal away when they flee in, the, in battle. But the king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, Oh, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Still, still grieving. And Joab came into the house to the king and said, Thou hast shamed this day. So Joab tells David, You have shamed this day. The faces of all thy servants, which this day have saved thy life and the lives of thy sons and of thy daughters and the lives of thy wives and of thy concubines, and that thou lovest thine enemies and hatest thy friends. But I think Joab had it wrong. This was not the case at all. It's just that David had a love that was like God's. This was a love that reached for those close and for those who were far. When Jesus uttered the words, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do, it was a love that made the enemy his friend. This was a love that went deeper than the whip on his back. This was a love that went deeper than the nails in his hands. This was a love that went deeper than anything they could injure him with today. With that same selflessness, selfless love, Jesus prays for the crowd to be forgiven. Perhaps we can hear him saying, my children, my children, they don't know what they are doing. 
And David said he wished he had died for Absalom, but Jesus did die for us. I'm supposed to be teaching, but praise God. I'm going to try not to get distracted here. Jesus did die for us. And this was a love that could not be understood immediately, but it can be understood now. The significance of those words and decisions Jesus made to die on the cross changed history. It changed history. Amen. And so maybe this can help us understand those words a little more clearly. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It was a prayer that drew close the enemy. And it was a prayer that drew close the friend. It was a prayer that reached beyond everything that separated us from God. And this brings us to another question. How difficult is it to forgive others who have caused you pain? I've been sinned against before. I'm sure you've been sinned against before. Someone's brought pain into your life before. Pain has been brought into my life before. But forgiveness hinges on faith. Forgiveness takes place in our decision-making process. And where we come down on the issue influences our actions or works. At Calvary, Jesus became the one who was sinned against in the place of every victim and simultaneously became the one who offered himself as the appeasement for every individual who required a guilt offering. He made a way for the sinner to find grace and he made a way for one sinned against to be appeased. When one does not forgive, one is saying his sacrifice was not enough to be appeased. When I'm sinned against and I don't forgive, I'm saying that the sacrifice Jesus made on Calvary was not enough for me. I look at the cross and I say that should be enough to make up for the way I was sinned against. Lord, you paid that. You paid that for me. Because that's what my, that's the sin, the sin that I, that was done against me, that's what, that's what it required to be appeased, but you paid it. But when I ignore that, that's an altogether different thing. That's a faith thing. That's, but that's why forgiveness hinges on faith. Because it's going to be hard to forgive someone if you don't believe his sacrifice was enough. For everything and everyone. We have to believe that Jesus' sacrifice was enough for everything and everyone. That there is no one beyond the blood of Jesus. That there is no one beyond the power of the cross. Because if we believe that someone is beyond it, we're getting pretty close. We're getting pretty close to some dangerous things. Take a look at Judas today. Jesus knows he's got an attitude problem, obviously. Maybe a little more than an attitude problem. Oh, Judas. John 6, 70. Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? Well, that sounds like a little more than an attitude problem to me. Uh, if I was called a devil, I think, uh, yeah, oh, anyway. Even though Judas is in the process of betraying him, he's still part of them when Jesus is praying and praying for them in John 17. So Jesus knows that Judas is a devil, yet in John 17, before Jesus goes and is crucified, he's praying for his disciples, and Judas is a part of them. So let's listen to that. Now they, now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and have believed that thou didst send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine, and all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee, Holy Father, keep through thine own name. Those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Whose that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, but 
the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He's praying for his disciples. So it makes sense in Matthew 26, 50. Whenever Judas approaches him, friend, why have you come? It almost sounds like Jesus has already forgiven Judas. Jesus knows he's a devil. Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed by him. And when Judas comes up, I don't think Jesus is being sarcastic. I don't think Jesus is being snarky. I don't think Jesus is having an attitude. I think Jesus has really forgiven him. So when Jesus says friend, he's looking at him as the person that he is. This says to me that biblical forgiveness looks past the sin that's been done against me. And it sees the person. I'm not looking at Judas the devil. I'm looking at Judas the friend. I'm looking at Judas the person who walked with me through my ministry. I'm looking at the Judas who was compassionate. I'm looking at the Judas who heard my, who listened to Jesus' words, who walked with Jesus. And so I th biblical forgiveness is looking past the sin and seeing the person. So we need to understand, though, that nobody is exempt from being wronged. I'm not exempt. You're not exempt. And that's a, a place in your book that you can fill that out. No one is exempt from being wronged. And the reason that is is because the world is fallen. The world is fallen. That means that we are going to suffer injustices. That means that we are going to suffer things from the hands of others and we are going to be wronged. And I'm running out of time here. So uh, let's see here. Uh, walking in relationship with Jesus does not insulate us from the actions of those who do not walk with him. That's important for us to understand as well. So walking in relationship with Jesus does not insulate us. That's another, another blank for, your, uh, for you to fill in there. However, I would say that walking with Jesus does mean that what was meant to curse us can, can become for us a blessing. And uh, what I want to point out here to you is, um, is to just comment on that real fast. So I want to return to David in 2 Samuel 16. So in 2 Samuel 16, David is leaving the kingdom. And as he's leaving the kingdom, a man comes from the house of Saul and he begins cursing David. So if you consider where the house of Saul is at, that was the last king of Israel. And David is now the king. So there's probably a lot for this man to be bitter about. You know, so he comes out and he starts throwing rocks and starts cursing David, starts hating on him. You know, this man, you, you're, you're bad, you're a bad dude. You did some bad things, so on and so forth. And his name was uh, Abishai. And David said to Abishai, and to, uh, or not the, not the man uh, who was doing that. Abishai was his servant. And David, David's servant. And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my son, which came forth of my bowels, seeketh my life. How much more now may this Benjamite do it? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord hath bidden it. So he's saying that the Lord hath bidden this man from Saul's house to curse him. To throw stones at him. Huh. Okay, so you're saying that sometimes adversity is going to come into my life and people are going to curse me and throw stones at me because maybe the Lord's bidden it. Well, that seems to be David's perspective. It may be that the Lord will look on mine affliction, and this is what David says next. This is really important to get here. It may be that the Lord will look on mine affliction and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. Wow. So based on the way David reacts to this man cursing him, God will requite David good for that man's cursing. Sometimes things come into our lives and we suffer injustice and we suffer people doing wrong to us. Because God wants to see where we're at in our faith. Are we going to come down on the side of what's righteous? And are we going to allow God a path to requite good for that person's evil in our life? Or are we going to try to sort things out on ourselves and get involved? 
Because only one of those paths is going to lead to life. Another scripture, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. This is another example of the way God takes things that are meant for a curse and transforms them into a blessing. And it all depends on how we react in the middle of our decision making. How are we going to react? What side are we going to come down on? So maybe with this we can see that turning the other cheek has a few deeper meanings. Forgiveness is not only necessary for our own sins to be forgiven, but it also becomes a precursor to blessing. And if we can see that today, I think maybe we can be a little more apt to enter into prayer. To seek the Lord to help us to forgive. Because if we can enter into that place of forgiveness, the Lord will begin to bless us and requite good for the evil that has come, into our, that has come against us. Amen. I want His blessing today. If you want His blessing today, why don't you say amen. 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 So these are monumental decisions where the defeat of sin becomes overtly evident in our lives. Jesus has won cosmic victory, but we have to be those good soldiers that say, today I'm going to forgive. Today I'm going to see what was, for, what was meant to be evil against me turn to good. So we're going to move on to, uh, to the next... Um, let's go on to the next blank uh, here. Running out of time. I had some... I had some stuff I wanted to talk about morality and justice. Um, I know that this is really interesting stuff, but we're gonna we're gonna move on here. Um, I want to give you some. I want to help you finish your books, right? I mean, how many of us are? How many like to have finished books? I mean, I like to have my book finished, right? I mean, if I start on it. And it's not like done. I'm like, oh man, I gotta get an answer from somebody. So we wanna we wanna get some uh, get some answers in uh, here today. Um, so let's answer let's answer this question real fast, and maybe I can expound on some of that morality and justice stuff here. What are some things that motivate people to do wrong to others? That's a good question. I think that any and all answers really boil down to lust and sin, because James one five says. Uh, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. You know? So I think that any and all answers that we come up with for that question, it really comes down to lust and sin. Uh, when we look at the uh, Ten Commandments, the last five commandments are all about how we treat our neighbor. It's about how I interact with uh, who is next to me. So, uh, honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. All how I interact with uh, my neighbor. So, um, uh, relativity though, relativity or what's best for me and my sense of what's fair, that's justice, um, and my sense of morality, and, and that's on um, what, I think is, uh, uh, what I think is right and wrong. Those things all come together sometimes, and especially in this society. So whenever we start thinking what's righteous or what's, what's justice and what's moral, we need to consider, what, well, we're thinking, in a different, we're thinking from a different perspective. We're thinking from a kingdom perspective, not a world perspective. You know, so from a world perspective, uh, and just to give you an example, from a world perspective, you, uh, a justice system in, in a country where, um, and let's just consider a thousand years ago, in a country where famine was rampant and people died from not having food and someone stole food. Well, justice for that moral uh, infringement might carry a similar, a similar um, um, consequence, a similar consequence. So if someone was going to die from your action, well, then you're going to receive a similar consequence because of justice. But a kingdom perspective says, okay, I have a different morality of what is good and what is right. And so, my, and so my justice is a little bit different. My judgment, what I think is just, is going to be different. 
So how do people justify themselves? And, and, I, and the reason why I went through that is because it's going to help us answer this next question. How do people justify themselves when they've been wronged by someone? Well, we justify ourselves by saying, what's fair? And if my moral perspective isn't biblical, then I'm going to, I'm going to be coming at it from a world perspective and saying, you know, what's fair is for me to blow up on that person. What's fair is for me to give them a piece of my mind. When a biblical, a biblical perspective is completely different. A biblical perspective is to forgive, is to pray, is to go to my brother and my sister and give grace. Amen. So um, in saying this, we all have to con- it's important that we all confront the fact that being wronged is even more difficult to deal with when it's not justified. So we know when we've done wrong, even in a biblical perspective, when we've done something that was... A, that was a sin against our brother and sister, we know when we've done something wrong, right? And, and so there are some things we know we deserve and that we know that the Lord has to chastise us for it because, uh, you know, we're not children anymore. And we know that that's part of growing. But Jesus did not deserve to die at all. There was, there was nothing that he did that deserved to die. But he did it. And sometimes we're going to feel like people don't deserve, don't deserve us to give them kingdom justice. They don't deserve us to be fair to them from a biblical perspective. But if we're going to be Christians all the time, that's what it means. It means I'm always being Christian. It means I'm always coming at things from a biblical morality, a biblical sense of justice so amen so we're getting pretty close here uh, to, to time and I'm sorry we're not going to finish your books um, if you want your answers you can just come to me later and I'll give you those answers um, if, it's, if it bothers you uh, that badly um, but where we're at today I do want to say that Whenever David was wronged, he went into prayer. Um, he, went into, he went into prayer. And he, he, prayed, he prayed this. He said, consider my meditation. And that word meditation is groanings or murmurings. Sometimes, sometimes that's where prayer starts because we don't really know where to start. We just have a lot of emotion going on. And um, he says, but as for me, I will come into thy house and the multitude of thy mercy and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wicked. Wickedness, their throat is an open sepulcher. They flatter with their tongue. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of, thy, of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous with favor. Wilt thou compass him as with a shield." In this psalm, this is a time where Absalom has started the rebellion. And we can really hear David wrestling with blessing and with that, with that outcry. You know, I mean, destroy thou them. Oh God, let them fall by their own counsels. He's saying, let them reap what they're sowing. He's not cursing them. He's just saying, let them reap what they're sowing. But this is David's way of, of getting through the way he's been wronged. Um, but this began with him going into worship. And when we begin to enter into a place of forgiveness, it's going to have to start with entering into a place of worship and prayer because we have to get our emotions right. We have to say, Lord, I feel hurt. Lord, I feel, I feel full of pain right now, and I, I want you to help me feel how I should feel. I want you to help me have clarity in this situation. And I want you to help me to forgive. Because if we don't forgive, we are going to have trouble being forgiven. That's what the Bible tells us. We can't be forgiven. Because we don't have faith that his sacrifice was enough. We have to have fully, full faith in his blood 
and the power of his blood to wash away all sin. And if we don't believe that, we have to enter into a place of prayer. And, you know, as we were getting ready to come out this morning, and I was going to close this a different way, but I want to tell you, um, I have, I don't just have a sense, but I know that there are, there are some people and there is someone here today who is weary. And it is weariness because you have been through a lot. It's weariness because you have suffered injustice. It's weariness because those injustices have stacked up against you. And it's weariness because you have sought a place of forgiveness but haven't quite been able to find it. But the Lord led me to this scripture today, and I want to read it to you. O God, when thou wentest forth before thy people, when thou didst march through the wilderness, Selah, the earth shook, the heavens also dropped at the presence of God, even Sinai itself was moved at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Thou, O God, didst send a plentiful rain, whereby thou didst confirm thine inheritance when it was weary. If today we can find a place of worship and prayer and find a place in our heart where we can forgive, we will see God confirm his inheritance in our lives. The Lord wants to confirm his inheritance to us today. He wants to take what was meant to destroy and cause it to bless. But it's going to begin with entering into a place of prayer and worship and getting our emotions right getting our thoughts right, and forgiving. Amen. Well, we're going to end there today. And uh, I wonder if we could just stand and have a word of prayer as we close. Amen. Amen. Dear Lord Jesus, Lord, we consider today your great love the way that you cried out that day, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. The compassion in your voice, the words, Lord, so full of love. Lord, I thank you today for your call to forgive and your assurance, God, that you will confirm your inheritance among us. I pray for today for those that are weary, for those, God, that are, have been made weary by the injustices that have been stacked up against them by those, God, that have been made weary by the many trials. I pray today, God, for their strength. I pray today, God, in your precious name, Jesus, Lord, for a loosing of supernatural strength today and encouragement. Lift them up today, I pray. I pray today, God, that the truth of your word that has been shared would resonate in each of our hearts. Let us take it with us. Let us chew on it. Let us be reminded of it, of it today as we go this week, as we go for minutes from now. I pray, God, that it would be within our hearts and our minds to contemplate that if we forgive Jesus, it will bring blessing, it will bring grace, and it will loose Jesus instead of bound and bind. I pray today, God, for a great loosing, God's supernatural loosing that only you can do that only your hand can provide for those that are weary, God. In your precious name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. God bless you.